welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we are positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Lucia Lazarowski from Auburn University about kind of long-term predictors of working dog success. This is a very recent paper that has just come out. We're super excited to talk about it. So um, we're not going to do a science highlight today because the entire episode is a science highlight. We also don't have any new reviews to highlight. So we'll just jump right into it with um, Lucia. So welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so why don't you start out with giving us a very brief overview. I think we've done it as a science highlight in the past. Um, Kind of the original study where you had a cohort of puppies and you were doing all these tests at different ages. Talk us through what that looked like and um, then how that led into this this more recent study. Sure. So um, that original study, the purpose was um, we, uh, so our program at Auburn, just to give a brief overview, is a breeding program for dogs, um, primarily for explosive detection, um, but generally for different um, detection roles. And so we, we breed our dogs here. They go through early development, socialization, training. They're part of the program until about a year old, at which point they are presented to various customers for single purpose detection, um, and then hopefully they go out in the field. And so part of our process is that we conduct behavioral assessments at different ages to kind of track the puppy's progression, get ideas of which dogs seem to have potential, which don't. Um, And we had just a sort of internal behavioral assessment that we had been using for many years. So we got to the point where um, we decided it was a good time to try and validate our test. So anytime you have a novel um, behavioral test, it's a good idea to to validate what you're doing to essentially um, see if what you think you're measuring is what you're really measuring. Is it reliable over time, reliable over context? And so um, our goal was to take our existing test, run a validation on it, and, and make sure that we were getting you know, reliable and valid results. And so we did that by um, taking a just a cohort of puppies within our program um, during a particular year, about 60 puppies, and uh, looking at their performance on these behavioral tests at different time points, so three months, five months, 10 months, and then around 12 to 14 months at the end of training, and then seeing if how they performed on that test was predictive of their selection um, for a detection role. And so in the field of behavioral assessments, there's lots of different ways that you can look at the validity of a test. And so we looked at kind of three main things. One was, um, is the test um, reliable? And you can look at reliability in different ways, but that generally means do you get the same results um, across, at, you know, when you perform the test at different contexts or does it, is it repeatable? Can different people perform the same test and get the same results? So for that goal, um, we that's really getting to whether our um, protocol for running the test was objective and reliable and if the definitions that we were using were objective. Mm-hmm. And so one way to do that is can different people take the same list of definitions and of tests that we're using and can they come up and they look at the same dog and get the same result and so that's uh-huh. that your your test is as objective as possible which is important with 
behavioral tests, which usually do have a lot of subjectivity. Um, so to accomplish that goal, we had um, multiple different people, different trainers, as well as research assistants, observe and score the same dog using the same definitions, but independently assess the dog. And then we look oh. at how closely they matched um, in their scoring. Um, so we found for that, that that we did have really good agreement between different people, um, which tells us that our our protocol for running the test and for scoring the dogs um, was pretty, pretty consistent across different people. Um, we also looked at convergent validity. So this is uh, looking at um, we all, you know, we assume that we design a test to measure the thing that we're interested in measuring, but you, it's important to compare that to some other measure to tell you if what you're measuring is what you think you're measuring. And that can be difficult to do because you have to compare it to some other method, some other gold standard. Um, and there's currently not a whole lot out there for detection dog um, behavioral assessments. So we use the CBARC, which is the, the canine behavior, uh, I always forget what it stands for, assessment research questionnaire, something along those lines. It was developed um, by Dr. Serple at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and that is used a lot. It's basically a survey that assesses different aspects of dog's temperament. And it's used um, by lots of different research programs, mainly for pet dogs. It's also been used for assistance and guide dogs. Um, and although it's not, at the time it was not meant as an assessment of detection dog behavior, there are things that it measures that are important for detection dogs, mm -hmm. like fearfulness and boldness and um, trainability that we were trying to measure in our test. And yeah. so what we did was we compared how dogs scored on our behavioral test to, uh, we had the trainers fill out that questionnaire that was asking questions about those similar behaviors and looked at how that compared. And again, we found consistency between how the trainers were ranking their dogs on this previously validated questionnaire and how they were scoring them on the actual behavioral test. So that was for convergent validity. And then finally, the last one was predictive validity, which was probably the most um, <laughs> important for us. And that's whether the way that the dog behaves on our test is predictive of how the dog is going to perform in the real world or, or how they're going to be uh, their likelihood of being selected for an operational role. Um, and we did find that um, the performance on the test, generally the better the dog scored on different items, the more likely it was to be selected around a year old for a detection role. So that was the original study was just to validate, okay, our test is measuring what we want to be measuring and it's reliable and it's consistent. Um, and it's, you know, a useful tool for us to gather data on our puppies and make decisions about their training and their outcomes. Um, yeah. And then well, the, I'm pause here for a second sure. because I think, you know, when we've done a couple different episodes about, you know, puppy assessments and puppy selection and dog selection. And, you know, I've done these before. I used to host a podcast called Pandemic Puppy Podcast. That was when I was raising my puppy Niffler. And we just did like, you know, crate training and like all of these like basic puppy things. But we did a puppy assessment um, episode as well. And I think, you know, as a potential buyer, you like for us, we think about like, is this test predictive? as like kind of the only thing we're really worried about in a lot of cases. Um, and I love that you laid out, you know, it's not just whether or not this test predicts it, but do multiple people get the same result over and over? Because, you know, if 
I could see situations where if you've got someone who's just raised hundreds and hundreds of dogs and they've got this test in front of them and they know that confidence and boldness are supposed to be correlated and then and but they've just got an eye for like what you know whatever it is that is going on with that puppy that actually is not necessarily objectively in that like syllabus Mm -hmm. um you know uh you could just end up with all sorts of screw results where like one one judge so to speak would be really good at predicting it and someone else who's much less experienced would be a far less experienced so yeah i just i want to call out like how complicated this is (laughs) and how hard this is and i think one of the things we talked about in one of the episodes we've done on this in the past is just you know to me, sometimes it feels like when we're looking at these assessments of like, like Niffler, my puppy, um, who's three years old now. Um, but when I first got him, they did their temperament tests and assessments at seven weeks. And it's like trying to take a room of like three year olds and decide which one you want to hire as a lawyer. Like, you know, it's way, you know, the LSAT isn't even that predictive. But at least at that point, you're so many more years into the situation and so much closer to um actually being a lawyer um and you know particularly with puppies you know we want something that's going to be productive before they leave mom because that's when we decide to take them home in most situations you know you at auburn and you know guide dog programs it's a little different because you're holding on to those dogs for a year or two but you know i wasn't gonna ask the breeder to hold on to niffler for two years um yeah and that's, that's generally what what we found and what others have found is that the the older the puppy is when you do the assessment the the higher you know the predictability is going to be obviously because there's a lot that changes over there the first year of life but the ultimate goal is the earlier the better because then you can can save time and resources if you have a puppy that you know is just there's strong indicators that it's not going to work out and needs a career yeah. change or making alterations to their, to their training plans um so you know we did find that the older you know at 5 10 12 months the closer you get to the end obviously yeah the, the stronger the the predictive ability is but we we did find indicators at three months um that did yeah. that did show how how likely a dog would be to be selected yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, and, and that's just kind of how, like, almost all predictions go. Like, I, I'm a little bit of a political polling nerd. Um, <laughs> I listen to the 538 podcast, and they do all sorts of polling. And, you know, they just had an episode a couple weeks ago about, like, how predictive are polls about the presidential election a year out before the election? And they were like, they're not. <laughs> you know, like, it's a 25-point swing, which, like, you know, we, you know, you're looking at something and it says that so such and such candidate is 10 points up. But if you're a year out, that actually has zero predictive value. And, you know, we're all getting yeah. anxious about stuff or <laughs> excited or whatever about something that just really doesn't have predictive value. And like, I find listening to that podcast, like when I sat down in my first, you know, graduate level stats class, I was like, wow, listening to this podcast for the last couple of years really has me like understanding a lot of the like limitations better like you know the math is still really hard but anyway that's a side note so now okay so we've got this this earlier test or this earlier paper where we looked at puppies at you know up into up until placement basically and we found what was predictive up until placement but now the question is okay but what if the dog washes out of training or or what out of placement or what if you know, like you mentioned, you might have a measure that you catch in a puppy that's three months old and then you adjust their program and then that could help them succeed. 
Um, but the same thing can happen with like a 12 month old dog. You could hold them back and work on something and then they could still get placed. So that's basically the question for this next paper, right? Yeah. So generally most, um, most research that's out there on working dog selection tests is looking at, you know, how, how different assessments at different ages predict what can be called, you know, graduation success or training success, basically their placement at the completion of training, if they get selected for a role, placed in an operational role. But there's kind of this black box after that where there's generally not a lot of feedback once the dog is in the field of Mm -hmm. how the dog is performing. And there's a lot that happens after the dog is selected and a lot of changes that can take place because usually um, in a lot of cases they go to another program where they get more rigorous, more advanced, more specific training, and they go through a whole training course with a specific handler, but they actually go out and they're placed in the field in a specific setting or environment. And there are dogs, you know, there's there's attrition that we see early Mm -hmm. on during the puppy development period, but then there's also attrition that happens once in the field. Um, And so there's not, you know, previously been a lot of information about how reliable these tests are in predicting long-term success in your career beyond just that placement. And so because we have the luxury of being able to track where a lot of our puppies go because we have good relationships with the the customers that get them, um, we were able to get a lot of feedback um, on the dogs. And so that was our question was, okay, it's great to know that our puppy tests predict if they get selected or not, but we want to know if that selection has you know, long-term, the, the, the longevity of that. Um, and so what we did was we followed up with those same 60 puppies. Three years later, we contacted um, the, the, in some cases, the handlers or the trainers where the puppies went, but in other cases, if the dogs had, if they were a washout and they were adopted, then we were able to contact people that adopted them. And we just wanted to know, you know, what's the current status? If the dog had been selected for a, for a job, is it still working? Um, mm-hmm. And for the dogs that just across the board, looking at what their behavior looks like now and, you know, is is behavior stable across development into adulthood? And is their placement, their selection, is that consistent with their working success and just kind of more, more long-term longitudinal information on the dogs, how they're doing now beyond that, that year old um, time point? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, I guess one of the things, this isn't necessarily addressed in the paper, but it just popped into my head. Um, Given how expensive it is to purchase a one of these dogs, what do we know about kind of quote unquote, how bad it has to be for a dog to be dropped from a program post selection? Um, Because I can just imagine if I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on a dog, um, just how much uh, loss aversion might come into that decision. And, you know, obviously, you know, we also just can't know in this sort of setup, like the quality of the training that these dogs received or the type of training or intensity of training. um, Because you can imagine different trainers in different programs have vastly different um, or maybe not vastly different. I guess they're all kind of going into similar roles, but different levels of skill sets. So anyway, that's a couple of different like questions and things I just want to pull on a little bit with you, if that's okay. Yeah, and that that's definitely a challenge to this is that um, it, in a in an ideal world, we would have like the same the same customer assess all of our dogs using yeah. the same standards and same decision making. But there's obviously 
there is changes in the supply and demand of dogs and that can affect their decision about whether they're going to select a dog or not. Um, and like you said, different trainers are going to vary in how they train dogs and you know how good of a trainer they are. And so there's lots mm-hmm. of different factors that come into play in, you know, in regards to the dog's long-term success. Um, and so it's not, it's definitely not perfect. Um, but in general, everybody wants the dogs to succeed. If somebody has invested you know, in in selecting and purchasing a dog and putting it through training, they're going to want that dog to succeed. And again, there's going to be things that come into play, like large organizations that have tons of dogs coming through. They have a little bit more flexibility to just wash a dog that is going to require more work, whereas smaller programs that, you know, every dog is very important because they've already put a lot into it. They might be more willing to invest more into making sure that dog succeeds. Um, But for the most part, you know, we... um, we're just looking at whether, you know, we're kind of assuming that the dogs have to have some minimum level of behavioral characteristics that allow them to perform yeah. well in their job and that they're only going to wash if they, if something happens or um, they exhibit behaviors that are incompatible with performing their job. Um, totally. Yeah. 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 So let's cut to the chase. How many of these or kind of roughly what proportion of the dogs that were placed or purchased ended up still being in the job a couple years later? So I guess it's kind of two different uh, answers to that question. So of this cohort of 60 dogs, um, the, our kind of primary question was how accurate was the, the selection designation, how that matched up to their three years later still working in the field. And it was actually almost perfectly consistent that the percentage of dogs that graduated was the same as the percentage of of dogs that were still working in the field three years later. However, there's a little bit of nuance there because which ended up being sort of surprising and probably uncommon, but um, for one, only two dogs from that cohort of 60 that was selected um, ended up washing from the field after selection. But we also Mm -hmm. had two dogs that were initially not selected that received additional training a little you know they matured a little bit ended up getting selected later on and so Uh on balance it ended up being equal you know two washed and then two were placed that originally got categorized as washouts so it ended up being the same but in reality four dogs changed um their status originally was yeah yeah that that's a good way yeah that's a good way of putting it and i mean again i think that makes that I hope makes sense to most of our listeners. Like if I look at like so many dogs at one year old, um, that's actually, it's much more predictive than I would have expected. I think. Yeah, Um, absolutely. So, so that was exciting because that's pretty, that's very good numbers in terms of, um, but but if if we look at just the general success rate from that original cohort, I want to say it was around 60% of the dogs got selected, um, which is, that's pretty consistent across the board for working dog programs. They tend to average Mm -hmm. anywhere from like 30 to 50 or 60, not as high as we would like. Our program usually boasts better numbers closer to 80. This particular cohort was a COVID cohort. And so this is not as ideal as we would like. And so Mm -hmm. the, of the, the, from that first study of the the dogs that got selected um, was a lower success rate than we typically see you know, across several years, we were just looking at like one, one particular year, which happened to be, um, right during COVID. So we, I mean, we have no way to know for sure, but we did know that there were multiple litters in there that didn't get the same exposure to different people 
early yeah. on um, just because we had a lot of restrictions on who could come in. But um, but then in terms of the consistency of outcome from selection to working three years later, that was extremely stable. And so that, that mm-hmm. was exciting just that we can be confident that the decision that's made around a year old is going to be pretty reliable and consistent years later. Yeah, that's really cool. So what, and this might not be something that you're as involved in, so it's okay to say you don't know. What is kind of the process like for buying one of these dogs? So like when I, when I acquire a dog, most of our dogs are shelter dogs. So we get, you know, as much information as we can, but usually, you know, we don't even have a pedigree. Um, You know, we don't know parentage. We have no idea, like, what this pup was, what this dog was like as a teenager, or maybe the dog is still as a teenager, but we don't really know like what their fear periods were like, or, you know, whether or not fear periods actually exist, but you know, whether they were like a weird teenager, <laughs> like are people handed like, you know, like a file folder of like biographical information with this dog and then like videos of them, like, do they assess them hands on? How does it actually work? Sure. Like, how much so, um, so our program, because because we are, you know, a research program and because we breed the puppies here and raise them here, we have a wealth of information that I want to say most programs probably don't have that much information on their dogs or it just probably depends on the organization. But generally, um, customers that are coming to select dogs, you can offer them all this information and they generally don't want it because they don't want it to bias their decision or they might you know, they might take it and look at it after they've made their decision, but we've we've kind of run into a lot of that. Like, we can give you all kinds of information about how they were as puppies and all these yeah. things, but they want to look at how that dog performs on that day because that's yeah. what matters to them, and they don't want to they don't want us to bias um, their decision. Um, but typically, what it looks like is, um, you know, we have relationships with different customers um, either locally or, or around the country um, that they will go on their procurement trips when it's time for them to procure new dogs. They'll usually visit several different um, programs looking for dogs. Um, TSA is a good example. They were just here recently. Um, they will visit different programs. Um, they will run their own version of their test. So the test that's described in our papers is our internal test that we use um, to get data on the puppies and to make, you know, get a good idea of their chances. But the customers that are coming to select dogs, they're going to run their own test. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes it's similar in some ways. Sometimes it's different. Um, generally, they, they'll they typically, I mean, they're consistent in what they're looking for, but they don't want people to be able to, you know, train to the test. And so they're going sure. to introduce some, some novel aspects so that, you know, the dog does it look fluffed up for the test but it's not representative and so they'll run their own um their own assessment and that'll vary depending on who the customer is and what they're looking for in terms of what kind of environment the dog's going to be working in some some might emphasize a lot more of how the dog is around people and crowds if the dog will be working in a place like that whereas others may not care about that if it's going to be you know a dog that's going to be working screening cargo or something where that doesn't matter so everyone kind of has their own test um the medical information is definitely something that's important that we, we do, you know, hand them electronic files or folders full of um, certain screenings. So, so TSA has specific medical requirements. The dog has to meet certain standards um, medically to even be considered. Um, and, and again, different different customers will vary in what things they may or may not accept depending on 
like the physical demands of the job and how important right. something might be. Um, we are, uh, our program is currently part of um, a national breeding consortium. It's, um, it's being funded by DHS and it's through John Hopkins University. And mm -hmm. they're basically um, working with several different detection dog breeding organizations around the country, some small kennels, some bigger groups like us, um, to try and address this issue of um, not having enough quality detection dogs domestically. So a lot of times groups like TSA have to go overseas to look for dogs. When you're doing that, you're usually not getting as much information on the dogs or may not be as accurate. There's a lot more medical issues. And so it's kind of this um, incentive to help domestic breeders increase the supply of, of dogs. So anyways, we're part of this um, consortium and um, part of that is gathering lots of data on our puppies and then actually providing the customer like TSA with a profile of how the dog has performed and their prediction of um, mm -hmm. being selected for that particular role. And so that's a good example where when they when they come, they don't look at that until after they've done their assessment to not bias them, but then they will use that information to look at how accurate it was and, and fill in any gaps that maybe they didn't have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, you you do your assessment, you get your own, you make your own judgment, and then you know you can see if it's then based on the paperwork if it looks like that dog was having an unusual day or yeah something like that. Cool. Yeah, that's really helpful. So okay, so four of the sixty dogs changed status a couple of years out. Um, what? What were what are some of these tests like? You know, do you what can we yeah can we walk through what that was? Sure. So um, the tests are designed to to assess kind of I guess I would say three broad categories of what we consider to be important behavioral characteristics. Um, one of those obviously being the specific detection skills and abilities. So how good the dog is at using its nose and different different um, olfactory behaviors. Um, another being what a lot of people call environmental soundness or um, emotional stability, kind of everything that has to do with their confidence or fearfulness or lack thereof. Um, and then the other being kind of motivational characteristics. And so the the test is broken up kind of into a series of subtests that um, like multiple mini tests that are all going to then kind of address those those bigger domains. Um, so the first part is looking generally at the detection behaviors, um, and that's that's typically set up as a series of searches. Um, and all of these tests across the different domains they they generally get more challenging as the puppies are older. So when they're three months old, the test is shorter because the dogs don't have as much endurance and they haven't had as much training and they get kind of more longer, more challenging as they get older. Yeah. But um, generally uh, a series of, of searches um, when they're young, they are just, we're just hiding their toys and they're looking for their toy because they haven't actually been trained to specific odors. And we're just looking at, you know, how, how enthusiastic they are in searching different areas, how, uh, how efficiently they're using their nose versus using visual targets. Um, you know, how uh, their level of arousal while they're searching. So just basically anything, anything to do with um, the actual hunting 
abilities. Um, then we, through that, we're also looking at the dog's motivation for their reward. We use um, toy reward for, for most of our dogs. Um, so throughout the search, as they're getting rewarded, we're looking at um, the dog's possession. So how much they want to physically possess the ball in their mouth and play tug and um, just their kind of interest and persistence and motivation for the reward um, because obviously that, that's what's used in training and the higher their motivation for that toy, the more trainable they're going to be, the more efficient training is going to be. Um, and then the third part of the test being the environmental soundness and that usually looks strange because it looks very artificial and far removed from what the dogs are going to be doing. But what we've found in our analyses is that you can do these kind of battery of um, of exposures to strange objects and stimuli and that that's going to be a good predictor of the dog's fearfulness and confidence in more natural environments. So that's usually mm -hmm. confronting the dog with a novel object. We'll use um, we have like a little dinosaur statue, um, a, you know, different kind of like statue object type things that the dogs probably haven't seen before. And we're looking at how, you know, are they scared of it? Do they approach it? Um, we will do a, a visual, uh, like a surprise element. So um, like an umbrella opening or a bag being thrown in front of the dog, something that suddenly appears in front of the dog and their reaction to that. Um, an acoustic startle, so a loud noise. Um, and then an animated object. So something kind of robotic in motion, usually like some, a race car, a robotic toy, and looking at their reaction to that. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, kind of what I was getting at a second ago, um, we used to have another component that was also looking at this environmental soundness domain was we would take the dogs to a high stimulus environment like downtown or campus, and we're looking at how they react to crowds of people and cars and noises in the environment and stairs. That's a very typical assessment for working dogs. Um, but there are issues with it because, well, it's time consuming to do that and to find the areas. That's another problem we had during COVID is that there was, we couldn't find places with people to expose the dogs to, to attack <laughs> them. There wasn't a lot of traffic. Um, the, the environment can be very different from one day to the next. So we're on a college campus. We like to use um, campus area student center a lot to test the dogs. But if it happens to be during, you know, a holiday break when we're doing this and there's no students around that the right. dog's performance that day will be very different than a busier day. So there's a lot of just factors that can vary. Um, what we found is that the dog's performance on this battery of, you know, presentations to these novel unusual objects that was just as predictive of mm -hmm. how the dogs perform in these different operational environments as actually exposing them to those environments and so what that tells us is that we don't have to do that longer more complicated more variable test we can just do the simple battery and get the information that we need that's really interesting that actually is kind of surprising to me do you know if that has been validated across breed groups at all or is this just with your group we so i don't know that 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 the test that we use as far as like the the battery of objects that is used a lot by different groups looking at dog behavior both for working yeah. dogs and working dogs um as far as i know it has never been compared to like operational um, exposures, but uh, generally that kind of test is has shown really good results because it's much more standardized and structured. And so you can totally, yeah. I was just 
Yeah, I was just thinking, so like my both both of my dogs are border collies and they're notorious, but you know, like where does this come from? How much of this is just kind of what we all say about them, but they're kind of notorious for being bad with sudden environmental contrast. And I can imagine both of my dogs doing much better with like walking into an airport or a student center or a festival than they would with like an air horn going off behind their heads. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of the question. Like, I guess is like it's actually surprising to me that those things are that tightly correlated because I'm not confident it would be for my dogs, but. Yeah, like that also could just be, I could just be biased in some way in my own head. No, that's what I mean. That brings up a good point for our studies in general is that we have a very homogenous population of purpose bred yeah. Labradors. And so, you know, we always caveat with this needs to be replicated with other breeds, other programs. You know, our yeah. dogs are all raised in the exact same environment, same protocol for training, um, very closely related dogs. And so, um, this information is great for us, but whether, and that's actually something that we're currently working on in collaborations with other groups like the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, is uh, we want to see if these same tests are predictive for other breeds or just right. the same breeds that are raised differently or, or have different, you know, um, different tasks that they're being trained for. So um, that is, yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, because they have, like, PenVet has a lot more of the pointies, mm -hmm. and they do a lot more yeah. dual apprehension stuff. And yeah, I could see, yeah, I would also honestly be a little surprised if, like, a German Shepherd had that same reaction to, like, something appearing suddenly versus just kind of, like, being in a crowd. But again, like, that would be interesting if that is the case, and I'm just wrong. <laughs> yeah, and then um, there's also the the issue of um, dogs, you know, different roles the dogs need different types of kind of behavioral profiles. Yeah. So, so all of our dogs, uh, obviously single purpose detection, we don't do, you know, we don't have yeah. dogs that are dual purpose dogs. So um, for a, like a, for a dual purpose dog that's doing detection and, you know, apprehension, uh, patrol, whatever, um, there is some level of, I don't know if the right word is reactivity, but they- Vigilance? Yeah, they, they actually need to react yeah. to things like that in a way that we probably wouldn't want our dogs to react just totally. because of the role that they're going into. And so it may be that the tests um, are more or less predictive because of the specific job that the dog is needed yeah. for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for, I, and again, I've never worked with dual purpose dogs, um, but like I can imagine I might want a dog that can yeah, I would need a dog that can handle a crowd if need be, but also is going to at least respond to me if something has come up. Like, yeah, I don't know. And you might want that dog to be able to notice it, environmental contrasts on its own. And yeah, I mean, this is something we come up with in conservation all the time. We like we we do a lot of work with Search Dog Foundation, um, where they're you know they'll send us some of their potential career change dogs and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our first question is always like, well, have we seen them around wildlife? Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's like our first, our first wonder. Um, that is just not, uh, it's nowhere near as important for most other fields where like prey drive and toy drive often like correlate. And a lot of times when I'm talking to like sport dog people, they call toy drive prey drive. 
And like yeah. for us, we actually really try hard to pull those things apart and find the dogs mm -hmm. that will choose a ball over a squirrel and the dog views those as different reinforcers. And that's not a given. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's something we need. Yeah. We often joke that we are selecting for the Darwin Award dogs because if, if you <laughs> see our test, people will often say like, well, that's not fair. What you're asking the dog to do, like, I don't want my dog. One of our tests, we literally have a taxidermy bear that we, you know, the dog walks into a room and there's just this giant bear right there. And the better scores are the dogs that walk right up to it and sniff it and leave it. And they, you know, they don't show any fear apprehension to it. Uh, you, know, then there's, you know, that begs the question of like, well, do you want your dog to? Right, yeah, I know. Your dog is not going to survive in certain environments, but the yeah. reality of like what these dogs are, how they're being selected, the level of ex you know extreme things that they're being faced yeah. with—that's you know that's what we deal with. But yeah. right, yeah, like I might not want my dog to choose to approach a bear, right. <laughs> uh, but I also would certainly not want a dog that's going to like bark and charge at a bear yeah. like i might choose what you've described mm -hmm. i like i guess yeah having not seen like the whole suite of potential behaviors but like that like not worrying about it is still probably a pretty good thing for us but yeah, yeah. it's you know it's a, it's a huge question and you know I, w I wouldn't necessarily ask our dogs to go through that right away yeah, and we're not we're not looking for dogs that are just completely, you know, if they're not reacting at all, then you're asking like, okay, is this are, are their eyes working? Like, is there something that, you, know, you don't want them to just you want them to notice things? But what we kind of emphasize is their ability to recover from it. Yeah, so exactly. we don't want dogs that pancake and want to flee and leave the area, and they're so scared. Like they need to be able to if they're in the real world working. And they're confronted with a loud, you know, explosion, a loud noise, or you know, a, a random object that I've seen before. They need to be able to work through it. We don't want them to be uh, scared, but it is okay if they show some apprehension. But they take it upon themselves to then explore and investigate. They don't need a lot of handler encouragement and support, and they can overcome it. And it's not impeding their ability to work. So. Yeah, and that is such an important point. I remember, gosh, this was like years ago, listening to some podcast with Ian Dunbar on it, where he said something about, you know, well, if you open up an umbrella up in a puppy's face and it doesn't react, all you've confirmed is that puppy isn't scared of umbrellas. You actually know nothing about their ability to recover. And for most of us, that's actually what we need. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's good to know that you've got a puppy that isn't nervous of ABC, but you also as much, if not more, want their response. And I am so sorry about Norbert uh, singing. <laughs> He's just wandering around screaming. <laughs> this is life with that cat. Hi all, Rachel here from Canine Conservationist. One of the ways you can support Canine Conservationist is by checking out our online store. At canineconservationist.org slash shop, you can find hats, stickers, pet food mats, reusable grocery bags, mugs, and all sorts of shirts and jackets. I have one of the hoodies, and I think it's so comfortable and cozy. I also really love the pride stickers. If you really don't need anything new, you can also make a tax-deductible donation to Canine Conservationist at canineconservationist.org slash support dash our dash work. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, so I'm trying to think if there are any other like specific questions I had about the study. Was there anything that like surprised you as you were going in or anything that you were like, yes, that's what we were hoping to see? It 
it was it was really cool with this follow-up study um like i said we not only tracked dogs that had been placed in the field i guess i don't know if i finished explaining this but um, we not only followed up with dogs to find out their status but we also for as many of the dogs in the cohort that we that were generally local um, that we could we brought them back in and we repeated the test to see so we were interested in not only does the puppy test predict selection and working status three years later but we also wanted to know if their actual behavior was consistent over time and so we, we repeated the test with the dogs now at three years old and we brought in both dogs that were in the field that their handlers were willing and able to bring them in and dogs that washed out from early training that had been adopted by someone in the community we had them bring their dogs in and we repeated the test and so that was really cool to see both sides of it and to get that confirmation because a lot of the decisions are driven by the customer selecting the dog or not but a lot of them are also made internally as a program we don't necessarily present every single dog because if there's a dog that is just obviously not you know not cut out yeah. we're not going to put them through that we're not going to waste people's time and so we do make some decisions of we're going to go ahead and adopt this dog out go ahead and wash them out and they're not actually getting that third party assessment and so yeah. that was really good to have those dogs come back in run the test those dogs that we decided to wash out and then confirm like wow they really you know these dogs were scared to even walk in the door we've you know, some of them we didn't even complete the test because it you know probably would have broken them but so Maybe. You know, yeah. as, as you know sad as it is obviously to see the dogs um that are scared it was validating for us to see that we had made the right decisions about dogs like that and to get to compare a dog that had been adopted out because it was showing signs of fearfulness that was you know scared to walk in the door and very nervous versus one of the dogs that was in the field working that had come in that just you know was a cakewalk for them just night and day the yeah. extreme so that that was cool to see yeah that is really neat to see and that's such a good point too you know like in the conservation dog world i think we're you know those of us that go with shelter dogs i've heard you know like maybe 60 percent of the dogs that we identify actually go on to succeed and that's kind of like the equivalent of us just getting to do that assessment at 14 months mm -hmm. um but also looking at populations that are probably a well definitely a ton more variable but yeah we also don't know how much like i think our stats would feel or look somehow more impressive if we actually went into a shelter and actually just assessed all of the dogs there right. it would be like oh we're really good at rejecting dogs that aren't going to work yeah. because we also like we choose to actually assess like 10 5 percent mm -hmm. of even the dogs that e that come to us via email and people think mm -hmm. are going to work for us and often like to be totally honest a huge part part of that is like we're a small program we've got five mm -hmm. dogs like yeah. a huge portion of it is just like ah we don't have anyone looking or like We've got a couple um, females in our program that are not necessarily the best fit to live with other females that are also a little dog selective. So we've got, you know, there's, and that's a huge part of it though. Like you can't ignore that when you're looking at dog selection is that like, we might turn down a dog just because like the only person at, on our team who's looking has a female that's not super tolerant yeah. of other females or like, you know, I, we get a ton of requests or a um, ton of emails from people with like, really nice looking German shepherds or mouths. And we just, all of us are 
currently prefer smaller dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just like, yeah, that dog probably could do the job. Yeah. Um, and probably would be great. And like, we're happy to forward those dogs along and help them out. But, you know, there's just so much personal choice that comes into it. I'm like rambling a little bit right now, but it's like, no, that, yeah, that ties into what I was saying earlier about, you know, these numbers, they're not perfect because, you know, people, even from the same organization, depending on who shows up that day, they mm-hmm. may, they may run the test differently or make a different decision about the dog. Or like I said earlier, they, the contract that they're trying to fill may call for 40 dogs on one visit and it may call for two dogs, a different visit. And so dogs are being selected or not for these kind of external variables, not necessarily the dog themselves, but that's yeah. Well, like I know, and this kind of goes back to that interbreeder reliability mm-hmm. or inter-server reliability. We talked right up top, but back, I used to work at a large animal shelter. Um, and one of the things that we would do is I think we used, um, it wasn't Seabark. Uh, it was matchup. We used matchup too as our test. And I remember, especially early on, I, you know, I just had to talk to my teammates. I was like, Hey, if we get like female chocolate labs coming through, like I can't be the one to assess them. Like, <laughs> I had had a chocolate lab that was my one of my heart dogs. And, like, now if I got hired again, I, you know, if it was, like, Border Collies, like, I can't, I can't be the one who's assessing mm-hmm. them because I will, like, make excuses or whatever <laughs> for it. And um, that might be a little less common when, you know, A, someone's a professional dog assessor, mm-hmm. and B, you've got a more homogenous population. But um, that was definitely something that we really contended with in the shelter is kind of being like, well, but he's only been in the shelter for two days. So, like, should yeah. we just do the test again in a couple <laughs> days? And that's cool. But now he's been exposed to it twice. Like, so yeah. we could sensitize or we could desensitize. You know, you right. don't know which way it's going to go. But still, it's like, it, it's just really hard and very, very non-scientific on the shelter side. But <laughs> Well, we've, I mean, we have seen some biases in preferences for what people look for. We had a pretty consistent finding of males being more often selected than the females. And there was some, there was some thought that it's hard to say if it's because the males actually outperform the females or because in this industry, there is a preference or a bias for males. And so there are things like that, that we have to, that's interesting. Have you actually been able to look at like, are the males outperforming the females? We have found that on, Uh on some measures and at certain ages, they are. And Uh we think from the, the limited data that we have looked at on this, it seems like it probably has to do with the hormonal phases Mm -hmm that the females are going through where they kind of go through more sensitive periods when they're having these, you know, when they're approaching maturation and puberty that the males aren't as yeah. affected by. Um, so we, yeah, we have seen a little bit of like higher arousal and um, higher levels of boldness in the males compared to females at some ages. But at the end of the day, there doesn't seem to be any meaningful difference between the two um, yeah. final product. That's super interesting because actually it's funny in the sport dog world, there's like the opposite perception (laughs) in a lot of, at least in agility. Like when I talk to sport dog people and, you know, again, because I've got border collies, I talk to agility people a lot. Um, They're all like, I just don't understand why you would go with a boy dog. Like (laughs) they mature so slowly. They're so dorky. They're so goofy. You know, and there are all of these perceptions and it's all 
women telling me this yeah. about the males. And then I would imagine explosive handlers are like, is that is that a male heavy field? Definitely, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, then it's the question of is it the is it the preference of the blogger? Yeah. Is it just that who the person is? And yeah. <laughs> yeah, and even like I'm in a search and rescue group and a lot of people in there will talk about like, oh well, we wouldn't want anyone our, on our team to have an intact female because then during all of the trainings that would like throw off the males. Yeah. And like, that is kind of a real thing, you know, especially when people in search and rescue say that I'm like, but what happens if there's an intact female in your search area and there's a missing person? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So actually you might be the right person to ask for this question. And now we're like totally off the rails. <laughs> now I'm just asking you um, about anything you may have seen, but um in sport dogs, again, there's this really common perception or statement that like females mature faster than males. Mm-hmm. Is that anything that you've seen? Because it actually sounds like what you're saying is like in kind of like teenager dumb, mm-hmm. they might actually be less bold than the males. But like, are yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I can speak to how them maturing faster or slower. Yeah. It, it seems like what we've seen is just more that. Um, around that around that period of adolescence, the females are more affected by it because they're going through more hormonal yeah. changes. Um, one thing that we have actually seen in our population consistently, which has been something that's been just a anomaly, I guess I would say, is that our dogs um, seem to, the females seem to mature much later than the tip the the breed typically oh, does or than even like other programs that we've seen um and we think it could have to do with kind of like the the athlete effect you know like female gymnasts um mm-hmm. maybe just because they're um they're they, you know the physical activity they're engaging sure. in and their diet and things like that but um i remember reading an, a paper that talked about this adolescence effect um, like a, the teenage dog syndrome with a population of guide dogs and how they saw like big changes in their behavior around six months, which they said was right around the their first heat. And we were all like, whoa, our female average first heat is like 14 months or later. Whoa, so that's, holy cow. Yeah, that's that's so something that we are, um, I'm not as involved in this research, yeah. but definitely our program is trying to get a feel for why that is, what the cause yeah. is of that. And um, yeah, it's only been interesting and, and something that we have to deal with because we can't, we, you know, we have to hold on to the females longer to bring them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't right. think until later. Yeah. Well, and I guess there's also always the possibility when you're looking at like smallish breeding populations or closed stud books or whatever that you just have founder effects. Like, yeah. I, you know, they're like, yeah, like Niffler's litter, for example, there was seven puppies, I think, and like five of them went to experienced homes, including one that stayed with the breeder. And everyone reported like these guys are taking a long time to potty train. And they like had puppy culture. There was like nothing wrong with them. They were all like lovely, lovely puppies. But all, all of them, except for Niffler and one of the others, were like really unusually slow to potty train. Hmm. Um, you know, it's just like, I don't know, like yeah. <laughs> it, it could be some, like, it could be something in the environment for sure. Or like, maybe there was just something about that pairing that like created something. And when you've got these small closed breeding populations, like you could just have. Yeah. We actually have a good yeah, example of that. We, um, so like the, the Auburn 
dog, like our poster child dog is the, the Labrador, but we crossed in uh, several years back, we crossed in the, the German wire hair pointer or technically the, the Jadar um, to capture like the air scenting behavior. And uh-huh. so our dogs, we don't really have a lot of the wire hairs anymore, but most of our labs have like a little bit of, a little percentage still of the wire hair. Um, because the first, so we bred a male German white hair pointer to a female lab, and that first cross was amazing. They all went out and they were working. That was like 10 years ago, and they're just now retiring or close to retirement. That was a phenomenal litter. But then every litter after that had a lot of behavioral issues, especially like emotional reactivity, fearfulness. And so we kind of stopped. That's why we don't really have a lot of the wire hair anymore um, because it just time and time again, the litters were interesting. So like the F1s were good and then the F2s were weird. Yeah. And then then looks like if you look at our population and this is sometimes we struggle to in our analyses to look at breed effects because is that a breed effect or is it because it was literally one sire that we brought into our population uh, so it's something that he you know he didn't exhibit any of that maybe something that he carried or yeah maybe it was the particular pairing that we matched him up with so it, you know it's impossible to say when you have such a small colony yeah. but yeah that's that's exactly what we run into too yeah gosh yeah that's so fascinating it's so so interesting and it really makes you wish that like I don't know. I guess I, I I guess I don't know that this isn't happening, but and it wouldn't necessarily be applicable to dogs. But like, if people were doing that sort of behavioral crossing, breeding sort of stuff with like mice, where you can just get so many more answers so much more quickly, or I'm probably mm-hmm. rats, and I'm sure that's happening in psychology somewhere. Um, those are not the sorts of papers I've been following. Um, and again, then it's like okay, but how do you translate that over to working dogs and like breeds that are probably a lot more different than a lot of rat um or mouse like laboratory strains are but yeah and there is um i i feel like i've heard of something referred to as like hybridization where hybrid vigor with the first cross but then the any subsequent crosses are not as good so yeah interesting yeah and i wonder i like i know i'm not really in the doodle community um (laughs) but i listen to the functional breeding podcast and they've got some really good doodle breeders who come on and you know sometimes i listen to them talking about yeah these differences between f1 and f2 Mm -hmm. crosses and like whether you've got maybe it's your third generation, but instead of breeding a golden doodle to a golden doodle, you're actually breeding, breeding the golden doodle back to a lab. So you're getting three yeah. quarters lab. Yeah. Like it, it, it's just so complicated. And even like the very, very best breeding programs are still so small and you can only have so much information. Um, oh yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about like, I think my dream next dog that I would love to try would be a Sprawly, so a Springer Border Collie cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, I think I'm just going to have to make them myself if that's something <laughs> I decide I want to do because I can't find anyone doing it. Yeah. Also, it would just be, yeah, you have no idea. Like, we might get like that first litter might be total like firecrackers, like yeah. exactly what we're looking for, but that doesn't mean that you can just. I mean, I guess you could try to do the same thing with this with the same litter again, but like then you can't just keep making yeah. more and more of them and necessarily get right. that like 
homogeneity that we like out of mm-hmm. our purebred dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for letting us go down that, um, <laughs> that rabbit hole. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about the, the, the paper or that you wanted to expand on or circle back to other caveats that things should be, that people should be aware of? No, I think we hit on, on everything. Um, yeah, I guess like the, the main kind of limitation is just, again, the generalizability to other breeds in our yeah. population. So those are things that we're working on that we'll hopefully be able to address in the future. Um, something else that we are currently looking at is, so we have focused really on the traits that are important for detection dogs, but specifically explosive detection dogs, because that's just where, that's where our dogs go. But right now we're looking at, are there, we're pretty sure there are, but what are the specific traits that differentiate like an ideal explosive detection dog versus a conservation dog mm-hmm. versus a search and rescue. So, um, you know, how, like, what are the specific constellations of behavioral traits that differ between the, that are common yeah. to detection dogs that maybe differ between those specific disciplines? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That would be so neat to see. And gosh, I'm so excited to see more and more of this stuff coming out. And yeah, like I, again, this is something I've said previously on the podcast, but it's also, I guess, if you're looking at raw scores across breeds, this might still be consistent. But like when I was looking at Niffler's litter, um, one of the things that I was really looking for is I kind of wanted the most spanielly of the border collies or the most <laughs> retrievery of the border collies in that litter. So like I got to actually be there the day that they went outside for their very first time. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who was just like nose to the ground, tail up, like off ready to be red tail hawk food, like 50 meters away from the rest of the puppies while they were all like paying attention to mom and, and breeder. And I was like, that seems like what I think I want. But if I was looking at a litter of spaniels, I probably wouldn't want the most independent and the most like, I'm just listening to my nose. Screw you of the spaniels. Yeah. Cause I know with the border collies, I'm going to get the responsiveness. Yeah. Like I know that's something that just, that is maybe the most guaranteed thing you get out of that breed. <laughs> yeah. And then with the spaniels, it's like, I feel pretty confident I'll be able to get the, like the quartering and the sniffing mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. But like, can I get that dog to, respond well to me around birds is more like mm-hmm. my concern with that breed. Yeah. So anyway, like, I guess if you're looking at raw numbers, that's not as much of a concern, but certainly for people who are like looking at a litter or looking at a suite of dogs, like if you're comparing within the group, instead of looking at raw numbers, like that always has to be a concern. Yeah. And I guess that brings up another important um, kind of caveat about all of this research that we've done is that we are definitely not at the point where we're going to test a puppy and say with a hundred percent confidence. It's totally. Likelihood. This is all about like trends and typically the better they score, the higher their likelihood, but there's a yeah. lot of gray area where our, we've gotten to where our test is, is pretty good at differentiating like your best dogs and your worst dogs. But there is a lot of overlap in those middle ground dogs that could go yeah. either way. And that's just going to come down to personal or programmatic pros and cons and, and weighing the risks and benefits of keeping a dog that could, you know, go one of two ways versus washing a dog that maybe would have been fine. So yeah, there's still, yeah. there's still definitely room for improvement. Oh yeah, absolutely. And again, that comes back so much, I would imagine to those programs. Cause like so far, you know, I say conservation dogs, it's like, what I've heard from industry experts is like, yeah, 60% or so mm-hmm. we at canine conservationists are at a hundred percent 
of the dogs that we've selected are still in our program, but we also, like, each of our handlers has a max of two dogs. We're all really dedicated people, like, trainers who have been professional trainers in the past. Like, and with, because we all are co-founders, like, we can decide which dogs go on which projects and who's suited to that. Like, if we needed to be able to take a dog and say this dog can do a b c and d just as well as this next dog we would probably have closer to that like 60 percent success rate within our team um but there's just we've just got a lot more programmatic flexibility and also like really dedicated creative trainers um to get them through whatever they need or to work on work on whatever their weak points are yeah um, and you know, part of that is just that we're not the TSA. Like we're we're not government agencies <laughs> right. where we have these like super strict requirements, mm-hmm. or you know that like the dog at fourteen months must <laughs> like we don't have any of that. Yeah. So cool. Well, I had a blast. I feel like I could keep picking your brain about this for <laughs> ages. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll get to do that someday at some conference. I hope so. Um, yeah, but for anyone who's interested in learning more about Auburn's program or keeping up with your work, um, is there anywhere that people should be finding those things online? Sure. Um, so our program's website, if you just Google Auburn University Canine Performance Sciences, um, that is our, our program's website. I don't know how up to date it is with our research um but if you google my name um people oftentimes email asking for pdfs of papers and things like that and i am just kind of general psa the scientists are usually more than happy to share their papers for free so before you you know go and purchase it through you know the journal um we don't make any money off of that and we have no issue as long as we have the right to share the paper which a lot of times we have a version we can share i'm happy to share it so if you either just email me or if you just google my name i do have um i have a research gate page and i have a wix website where all my papers can be accessed um and then through that you can usually find our programs, other papers too. Um, and so we, we try and make all of our research as accessible as possible. Yeah, you were very responsive with that. And I think that's how we ended up doing this episode. I think I just emailed you for the full text and I might've gotten halfway through writing that email and then was like, wait, what am I doing? I need to ask her on the podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, originally I was just going to ask you for the full text because yeah. I was like, hey, I'm a PhD student. I'm not paying $70 for it. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't figured out how to use the university access yeah. system because <laughs> I'm sure I have access to it now. I just haven't figured it out. So... Well, yeah, cool. Again, thank you so much. And for everyone at home, I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Um, And maybe you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find our website at canineconservationists.org where we have Patreon and a course. And you can also just look at cute photos of our dogs. We just updated the website so the home page the aspiring page and the partnership page are all brand new and i worked very hard on those so go look at them and then tell me how much you like them on social media will make me very happy and um yeah we'll be back not next week but the week after um maybe we'll get back to weekly episodes i hope so because i really miss doing this but you know it's busy so, again thanks so much 